0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1st Peter chapter 2. Our study through 1st uh, Peter has brought us to chapter 2, really the passage verses 4 through, through 10. Um, last week we, we studied that already, uh, focusing on Christ as our cornerstone Today we want to kind of go back through that passage and especially look at verses nine and ten, which we didn't last week, um, focusing on the church, on Christ's church. So, once you find one Peter chapter two verse four, I'd ask you to please stand in honor of God's word, and I'll go ahead and I'll go and read verses four through ten. But our main text today will be verse five and then nine and ten. Let's hear God's word together. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. Why do you go to church? I did the quotes, right, obviously because we, many of you know that the church is actually the people. Church uh, means the called out ones which we see from this text, right? The ones who've been called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Nevertheless, we say go to church when we talk about the corporate gatherings of the church. So why do you gather with the church? Maybe it's because you grew up going to church. I mean this is just what you do, right? This is tradition. Maybe you come for encouragement. Maybe you come because of the relationships and or the ministries that are offered. And and again, those reasons are not necessarily bad reasons. I mean the tradition one is is pretty weak, but the other reasons have some merit, I suppose, right? But if you think about it, all those examples I gave, all those reasons I gave are actually really focused on what the church can do for me, right? How can the church help me? What can I get out of going to church? And it's a good day if I feel like I've gotten something out of going to church. It's it's a disappointing day if I leave and feel like, wow, I didn't get anything out of that, right? And, and again, I, there is you know I understand that, and there is certainly some some truth that we should receive encouragement from the, the, the worship of God and the, building, the body ministering to one another. But that type of consumer mindset that so easily creeps into us by, by, by our flesh and by our culture, right? That type of consumer mindset of the church reveals, again, a, a very inadequate view of the church. And so that's why I'm thankful for the text today. Uh, and certainly there's other passages, passages in Scripture that talk about the church. But our text today will help us have, understand what God says about the church. To have a biblical mindset about the church. And so that's exciting because, again, we are the church. So let's understand who we are according to God's word. And let's understand, by God's grace, what, for what purpose He's saved us and for what purpose He gathers us together as a church. So that's the title of the sermon today, The Identity and Purpose of Christ's Church. Here in 1 Peter 2, I want to show you two descriptions of the church, which I've related to or called our identity. And then we want to consider two purposes of the church that flow out of those descriptions of our identity. And again, there's other pictures the Bible gives of a body, right, of a bride. But, but Peter gives us um, two other descriptions of the church today. The first description of the church is, that we see from the text is, the church is the new temple of God built on the foundation of Christ. If you're taking notes, that's point one. The church is the new temple of God built on the foundation of Christ. That's what verse 4 and following is describing there. As you come to him, right, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ, for it stands in Scripture Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So last week we saw from this text right here in 1 Peter 2 that God is building us into a spiritual house with Jesus Christ as our cornerstone. Remember, the cornerstone is the first and most important part of the foundation. So we can say Christ is our foundation Ephesians 2 will say it's the apostles teaching about Christ that's the foundation, and that's true. But it all starts with Christ as the cornerstone. Christ, who he is, what he has accomplished. The person and work of Christ is the cornerstone of the church because that's how we're saved, right? So this spiritual house, right? That, uh, verse 5 says it's a spiritual house, and you say, well, how do we get temple from that, right? It could just be a house, right? But we'll look at the other... Uh, clues I guess you could say we have in there look at verse 5 you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices right that's temple language that's the kind of stuff that happened in the Old Testament temple right those are the activities of the temple in the Old Testament but what the text is saying is whereas under the by the way I'm going to be saying Old Covenant a lot and New Covenant and Mosaic Covenant. So just a quick, quick reminder, Old Covenant and Mosaic Covenant are uh, synonymous, right? They're saying, that they're describing the same thing. It's, that's how God, that's the covenant God made with the nation of Israel. Um, and we'll talk more about that. The New Covenant is the covenant that we're under, that we're in, praise God, because of the, sh- of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? So the temple of God under the old covenant was a physical building, right? It had physical priests who were mediators for the nation of Israel. And they, so they offered sacrifices for, for themselves because they were sinners, but on behalf of the people. And they, they were that go-between between the people and God, right? And then, and then you came to the temple to worship God uh, specifically because God in his grace, as a big um, aspect of that covenant was he had said, I will make my glory dwell there. In the temple, in the center of, uh, first it was in the tabernacle, right in the center of the camp. Then in the temple, in the in the in the center of of the land there, and so his special presence dwelt with them. But now, what Peter is telling us is the temple of God now is no longer a physical building, built with rocks and precious metals like Solomon's temple was. Now the temple of God is made up of believers, of people of Christians, those whom God has saved. And, and we are the stones. We are the living stones with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And again, the text reminds us of that, how he was rejected by men. He was rejected by the Jewish leaders, but chosen by God. And like I said, it's through his life, death, and resurrection that he has become the living cornerstone, right? Jesus is alive. He accomplished his work of redemption. He, he, his life, his perfect life and his sacrificial death uh, was sufficient to pay for the sins of his people. And so God the Father accepted his sacrifice and he showed that by raising him from the dead. So Jesus has become the living cornerstone, the essential foundation upon which God is building his church. It's through faith in Christ. Remember we see that. Uh, it, he says, as you come to him, and then later he says, as whoever believes in him. So it's through faith in Christ that we are united to him and that we too become living stones. Right? Jesus is alive and now we have new life in him. And then God sovereignly places us together to build his church to be a holy temple unto the Lord. And so this is why, again, it's so helpful for us to, to understand our Old Testament. And man, I, I still have a long way to go just to grasp the, the uh, centrality and the, um, I'm going to make up a word here, right? The essentiality, <laughs> how essential the temple was to the nation of Israel, Right? Because again, it was the place where God had promised to meet with His people. The temple was the place where atonement was made available through the sacrificial system. The temple was where the nation of Israel came specifically to worship God, and it's where it, it's through that relationship then that they were to then represent God to the world, right? So it used to be with Israel in the old covenant that God's presence and glory indwelt. That physical building, whether it be the tabernacle or then the temple. But now, do you see the progression here? Now that Christ has come and tabernacled among us, John 1.14, He has come and lived among us. The glory of God has come and lived among us. He died in our place. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He poured out his spirit to live inside of us. The Bible says that now we are God's holy temple. We are the place where God's presence dwells in a special way, right? We know God is omnipresent, but we are the place where His His glory is, is seen especially. Christians are individually indwelled by the Spirit of God. Romans 8.9 says, and, and that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6:19 says, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, talking about us individually. But what we see is the New Testament actually emphasizes the fact that Christians corporately are the temple of God. We see that in 1 Corinthians 3.16. We see it in Ephesians 2.21. I read that passage last week. And we see it here in 1 Peter 2. So again, um, and, and we of all churches understand this, right? Since we don't have our own building, since we've met different places. It's wherever we gather, that is the church. And that is wherever we gather, we know God is with us. Not only because I'm a Christian and I'm a child of God, but because corporately, he is with us. And this is where his glory is to be seen and experienced in a special way. So what a privilege that is, right? And again, I'm hoping that and praying that God through his word today will, will enlarge our vision of, of the church... And, and all to the glory of God, enlarge our vision of what, um, you know, God has graciously done. And the privilege we, and responsibility we have as the church. So we have the privilege of being living stones in God's holy temple. And that's why, again, if you want to get technical, we don't go to church, right? We are the church. But then as we gather, as God's holy temple, our focus in gathering with the church, like I said at the beginning, is not to be on on what can I get out of this, though we will be encouraged. No, our focus is, if we're the temple, our focus is on glorifying God, right? The temple was to glorify God. It was to be where the triune God was worshipped. It was to be where God's presence was, was experienced. And so as the church, loved ones, we are a new temple of God built on the foundation of Christ. Peter gives a second description of the church, a second description of those whom God has saved. And that comes down in verse nine. And, and it's gonna sound like he's given a lot of descriptions, and in a way he is, but they all kind of point to one big description, and so you can be thinking about that. Verse 9: But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the way I said it in the notes here is, who are we as the church? We are the new people of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ. You could even say we are the new Israel of God. But I'm going to say people. We are the new people of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ. Look again there in verse 9. Peter says believers are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Guess what all those descriptions have in common? They were all ways that God described the nation of Israel under the old covenant. And now here is Peter, <laughs> the apostle Peter who was a Jew who was who lived in under that old covenant, right? And then was around for Christ in the transition into the new covenant. And now Peter is telling believers, he's telling Christians, he's telling Gentile Christians even that they are now The chosen race, the holy nation, the the people of his own possession. They are the new people of God. I mean that, again, we, we don't probably grasp it. But man, if we had grown up a Jew, we would grasp that. I mean a Jew at that time especially, right? Wow, this is amazing. You are the people of God, he says. You are now God's chosen people. God has redeemed you from bondage to sin through the perfect sacrifice of Christ. God has set you apart for himself, a people for his own possession. He has called you out of the domain of darkness in order that you would live for him and bring glory to his name. So this should amaze us that Peter would use these terms originally given to the nation of Israel and now apply them to us, the church. And I, I, wanna, I didn't want to get bogged down in it, but I did want to just make a couple of quick references or uh, uh, elaborations, I guess I'd say, about those terms. Chosen race, if you want to study this further, that echoes Isaiah 43.3, which we heard this morning. And again, the context of that, right? Because Israel had broken their covenant with the Lord... God, through the prophets like Isaiah, announced that he would raise up Babylon to conquer them and exile them from the promised land. But even within the book of Isaiah, as he's announcing that coming judgment, he also then announces a restoration that will come after that, right? After announcing the coming judgment, God declared in the last third of the book of Isaiah, from chapter 40 on, he gives hope, (laughs) And so in places like Isaiah 43 that we heard earlier, God announced that he would deliver his people from exile in Babylon, that he would regather them from the four ends of the earth. And like I said earlier, this is happening now in the church. That is the ultimate fulfillment of it. Through the church. And then ultimately when Christ returns, it will be the final gathering of his people, right? Right? But think about this. Think about how awesome this is. God is calling people now from from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. He's calling people to himself all through the Lord Jesus Christ. All through the gospel of Jesus Christ. All through the cornerstone of Christ. The church now is a new race. Though it's made up of many ethnicities, right? It's a new race now chosen by God. And as Peter showed us at the beginning of his letter, on the basis of God's love and grace. Nothing in us that deserves it, right? It's because of God's grace. That he would set his love on us. That he would sanctify us by the Spirit. Set us apart for himself. As it said early in the letter. So the chosen race, comes. that term comes from Isaiah 43. The other terms were used of the nation of Israel in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. If you know the context there, that's right when God is is establishing the Mosaic Covenant, right? He's he's, he's, uh, delivered the people out of slavery in Egypt. He's led them to Mount Sinai. He's giving them his law through which he will establish the covenant with with them. And so in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, let me read that for you says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be... He's talking to the nation of Israel, right? You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He was telling Moses what to say to the nation. So you see that, it was the, originally it was the nation of Israel... I mean, when I say originally, I mean the Mosaic Covenant. It was the nation of Israel that was God's treasured possession. Right? Think about that. They were his treasured possession. I mean, he had formed them really through establishing even a, a prior covenant with Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. Jacob's renamed Israel. From Jacob come the 12 tribes of Israel. Then they, so he's already kind of formed them that way. But then he, the tribes, the, they go down to Egypt are put in bondage, right, by the Egyptians. Now he powerfully redeems them, delivers them from slavery through the plagues, through the Red Sea, under the leadership of Moses. So they are his possession, right? Not only did he kind of create them at the beginning, but now he's redeemed them. He's purchased them for himself, and now he establishes the Mosaic Covenant with them. There at Mount Sinai. So they were his treasured possession. They were to be. Think of what the role of the nation of Israel was to be. They were to be set apart for God's glory. They were to be a kingdom of priests. and what Again, what does a priest do? A priest is a mediator. A priest is a go-between. So they were to mediate God's glory and God's blessing to the other nations. The other nations, like we see in the, the Queen of Sheba going to Solomon, right? The other nations were supposed to be like, wow, there is something different about your God (laughs) your God is not like the other gods he actually is God and I want to know more about that I want to I want to be a part of that I want to come under his rule and his care so they were to be those mediators they were to be showing and displaying the uniqueness of God the glory of God the blessings available through God they were to to display God's rule and his glory through their holy lives fully devoted to the Lord how did israel do at that by and large we'd say eh, right i mean there were some good you know some uh, brief brief moments i guess but by and large they failed by and large they failed to be a holy nation set apart for the lord by and large they failed to display God's glory to the nations. At least for very long. They failed to be faithful. And obedient to their God. What now? There came a man. There came a Jewish man. Who was fully devoted to the Lord. Who faithfully obeyed God. And displayed God's glory to the world. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is the obedient son and the true Israel. Remember what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 2? Out of Egypt I have called my son. Talking about the plight of Christ. He, by God's grace, Matthew saw it, right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the true Israel. <laughs> He's doing what they, what they were supposed to do. Jesus obeyed the Father in all things, including being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place at the Father's right hand. And now, God has graciously redeemed us by the blood of Christ and made us his people. We, the church, are the new people of God. Christians, both Jewish and Gentile believers, are the new people of God redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are now God's chosen race. We are now the royal priesthood. We are now the holy nation and a people for his own possession. What a, what a privilege. And again, praise God that the, one who, the faithful one, the obedient one, has gone before us. And we're united to him, so we're, we're credited with his righteousness because we know we still fall short. ...of it in practice. But nonetheless, because we've been declared righteous... ...because we're at peace with God... ...because we have the Holy Spirit... ...now we're called to live that out. Now we're called to be those things. To be those mediators of God's glory... ...and God's blessing. To be the place where God is is seen ...and where people come and understand... ...more about the glory of God... The, the church, this, this new people of God, this was spoken of in the prophets, right? I mean, we've already seen that in, in um, Isaiah. Um, we'll come back to the rest of, of verse 9 later here in Peter 2, right? Because I know I haven't gotten to the second half of verse 9. But look ahead with me at verse 10 of our text today. Verse 10 of 1 Peter 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right? I've known that verse for a long time, and it's a beautiful verse. And, it's, and, I mean, there's a lot we can say about it, even just in our own experience, and even just on a kind of a surface level of, of understanding of the gospel. But what I learned this week makes it even greater than, than we might realize at first. Here in verse 10... Peter, under the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applies the language of Hosea to Christians, to the church. If you've ever read or studied Hosea, Hosea was another one of those prophets that were God's declaring judgment, but there's also glimmers of hope, right? God declared through Hosea that because of Israel's idolatry, God would show no mercy. And that Israel would now be, quote, not my people. He says that when he's getting ready to, to you know, bring judgment on them and, and kick them out of the land, <clears throat> excuse me, and have the temple destroyed. No more mercy. You're not my people now. And yet, the book of Hosea that announces that judgment also looks forward to a day when God would restore Israel after having rejected them. Hosea 1:10 says that one day quote, "The number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, and it shall be said to them, children of the living God." And so here, now in First Peter 2, verse 10, Peter is telling the Christians, Hosea was looking ahead, <coughs> excuse me, was looking ahead and talking about you guys. It's kind of like when you read Isaiah 53, that, that passage of the suffering servant that we know was talking about Christ. And it, it goes through a lot of his suffering and rejection. But there's also that but he shall see the, I can't remember exactly how it says it, but about his offspring. He will, he's going to see what comes out of this suffering. It's kind of like that. Hosea was seeing the judgment, not my people, no mercy. Oh, but, but God's going to do something. That's not the end of the story. He's going to restore his, uh, a people for himself. And that's what Peter is saying. That's why it's so beautiful. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, that fulfillment, I think, just makes adds an extra layer of glory to it. But even just taking those words at, at at the face value of what they're saying. How beautiful are they? Once we were not a people. Right? How does the Bible describe us? Once we were lost. Separated from God. On our own. If we belonged to anybody. It was the sons of disobedience. Right? The the devil's gang. But no. We were lost. Ephesians 2. We were separated. We were cut off. We were Alone, we could say, on, our, on the broad path that leads to eternal destruction. But now, by God's grace, by the finished work of Christ, we are a people. And not just any people. We are God's people. He has rescued us. He has redeemed us. We are God's children. We are adopted into his family. We belong to God. He's our father. Once we had not received mercy... And again, there's, I mean, there's common grace and there's, I I don't know if we ever use this term, but there's common mercy even to unbelievers, right? And that God sends the rain and the the sun and doesn't snuff them out immediately, snuff us out immediately, right? Apart from Christ. But, talking about salvation here, once we had not received mercy. Think of what that was like. Think of what your life was like before God saved you. Think about what your life would be like now if you were not saved, if you had not received mercy. Think what it's like to to not receive any mercy from God, to only receive justice. That's the way I've heard R.C. Sproul describe it when he's talking about election and things, right? And people say, "Oh no, God's not fair. He's like, no, God is fair with everybody. God is just with everybody, but he shows mercy to some. But think what it would be like to not have that mercy, loved ones. Think what it would be like to just be like, okay, it's just God's justice. On my own merits, (laughs) we're doomed. Who can stand? We're undone, as as Isaiah says, because we're 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 people of unclean lips. Praise God we've received mercy. Praise God we've received mercy. The punishment that we deserved has not and will not be poured out on us. It has been poured out on God's own son. And so God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God Through his son Jesus Christ showed us mercy. And I always am thinking about songs as I'm writing the the sermon, you know, wonderful, merciful Savior, right? May that always be on our lips. God, you are wonderful. You are merciful. And again, wonderful is a word that gets kind of cheap, right? It can be cheapened. But think of what it's saying I am full of wonder at your mercy. All right, so there's our identity. I hope you're encouraged already. By God's grace, as the church, we are the new temple of God built on the foundation of Christ. We are the new people of God redeemed by the blood of Christ. So now let's consider our purpose. Number one, to declare God's glory with our lips. And you'll see why I said that when I say, give you the second point, right? But to declare God's glory with our lips. We see that in verse 9, don't we? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, as the church, we are the new covenant people of God. We've been redeemed through the blood of Christ. Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter, again, is echoing Isaiah 43, 21, the very last verse that... That Todd read for us, talking about that we would give praise to his name. We've been given this mission of declaring God's praise, of declaring God's glory to others. Here's our mission as the church, of telling others how awesome God is. (laughs) That's a pretty simple and straightforward mission, isn't it? Telling others how awesome God is. Telling each other how awesome God is. Telling unbelievers how God, awesome God is. Excellencies. Proclaim the excellencies. And excellency was a... Don't you love definitions like this, by the way? This is what was given to me, okay? A demonstration of God's power that is excellent. <laughs> I hate that, right, when dictionaries use words that, you know, the same word to define But, but you get the idea, right? It's, it's a demonstration of God's power that is wonderful. That's His excellencies. So another ter- other terms for excellencies could be His wonderful acts or His powerful deeds. That's our mission. That's our purpose, to proclaim those things to each other and to unbelievers. We praise God for His excellencies. We are to praise God and to de- declare to others how great is our God, how great he is because of who he is and because of what he has done. He has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's another example of what was it was like to not have mercy. Well, it was to be in darkness, wasn't it? <laughs> to be in the domain of darkness, Colossians 1 says. To be, um, how does Ephesians 2 say it? I, I, I'm drawing a blank, but it was basically to be following the prince of the power of this air, following the, the course of this world, to be enslaved, Right? But God did something awesome. God did something powerful. God did something gracious. He redeemed us. He called us. He sent his son to die for us. Through which we have that redemption. So let's tell each other about it. All the time. (laughs) And let's tell others about it. Every opportunity we're given. We encourage each other. By praising God for the gospel through our singing. I love it when we can hear each other sing. We encourage each other by praising God for the gospel through our singing. We encourage each other through our prayers. We encourage each other through discussions during our studies. And in response to preaching afterwards or whenever. When you're talking about what God is doing. When you're talking about his word. We preach the gospel to each other declaring the greatness of God. We'd say things like, man, hasn't God shown us such amazing grace? Man, God gave up his son for us. May we never become complacent about those things and, and you know, so familiar that it's just like, okay, yeah, yeah, he gave up his son. No, let's, by God's grace, let's be all, always in awe of that and excited about that and telling each other about that. He gave up his, his own son for us. He set his love on us before the foundation of the world. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his marvelous light. We get to be in God's eternal kingdom of light, of peace, of righteousness. We get to be what is our inheritance. It's the glory of God. It's being in the very presence of God. He's called us into his light. We who are on our own darkness and filthy. But oh, we've been made Children of light, Ephesians says, right? Or Philippians, I can't remember. Because the light of the world has saved us and come and lives in us by his spirit. He has powerfully set us free from bondage to sin, right? Talking about excellencies, his powerful acts. As powerful as the plagues, as powerful as the Red Sea was. The gospel and what God has done for us is even more powerful. And I, I get it. It's, it's, it's by faith. It's not by sight. We can't see it. Well, actually, but we can kind of see the results of it, can't we? Some of you who were saved later in life, especially, you know, and I mean, you have vivid descriptions and you could tell us about it, what it was like to be a slave to sin. Oh, but how powerful is a transformed life. How, not a perfect life, not a sinless life, but a, one who's set free now. One who loves the Lord, one who is learning and not, and not uh, being deceived by sin, that's powerful. And God has done that. And only God could do it. Right? The world, and, and God, God bless them, and I, I mean, however you want to say that. They mean well at, at times, right? They're trying with their programs and their this and that. They can't ultimately do it. It's got to be God. He's the only one powerful enough to change a heart. Right? Right? So again, I had more descriptions of things we could be telling each other. He's, he's placed us in his kingdom. He's placed us in the body of Christ. Let, let's get together and talk about this. Let's study, get, get together and study his word. And I know many of you do that. Let's gather together to pray. And I was so encouraged that some of you were doing that the other week, I heard. Let's gather together to pray. Why? Like Pastor John said, for one, so we can praise God through our prayers. And also so we can pray for his kingdom to grow. We can pray that his glory will spread. Because that's what this is all about. (laughs) It's about his glory, right? It's not ultimately about me, even though I get to be swept up in this great program that God is doing. It's about his glory, so we pray for his kingdom to come. We are called to declare the excellencies of God not only to each other, and that's what I was talking about mostly there, but to unbelievers. Right? Here's where evangelism comes into it. As a holy nation, as a royal priesthood, we've been chosen by God to be a special possession in order to proclaim his glorious work in salvation. We are people who've been brought out of darkness into his light so that we can tell the good news of Christ to those who are still in darkness. Again, a royal priesthood Israel was called to be that royal priesthood, be that mediator. I've talked about that to the surrounding nations. So too are we as the church called to mediate God's blessings to the world. How? We can't bless them. We can't save them. But how can we mediate God's blessings to them? By proclaiming the gospel. By declaring the gospel. By pointing them to Jesus. By saying, he called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he can do that for you as well. He is a good God. He's a merciful God. He's a powerful God who loves to save. Turn from your sins and run to him. And again, I'm preaching to myself just as much as I am you all. Because I am too weak in evangelism. But may God help us. May God help us. This is what we've been saved to do in addition to encouraging each other and preaching the gospel to each other. We are to be mediators of God's glory by proclaiming the gospel. And again, this is very helpful and I, I won't spend much time on this because I, by, you know, God has spared us from being uh, distracted by this. But it has been a co- topic of conversation a lot in recent years and through the years, right? What's the church to be doing? Is the church to be doing social justice? Is the church to be, you know, just going out there and, and making the world a better place as much as we can with good deeds? No. <laughs> Not, I mean, we are to have good deeds, but they have to be, it, uh, the gospel has to be included with that, right? Yes, we are to show Christ's love. Yes, we are to be a blessing. But it has to include the gospel. If the gospel is absent, we've lost our identity and we've lost our purpose, okay? And, and again, when it comes to issues of justice, we can... We can say with confidence and with joy god is a just god J- jesus cares about justice and you can find justice in his kingdom in other words he will he will rescue you he will include you in his kingdom And we know that God is coming. Christ is returning, and He is a just judge. And one day, every wrong will be made right. And they can uh, see a a taste of what how God intended life to be as they come to the church. God help us, because we fall short. So. We need to evangelize. We need to announce the good news of the salvation that God offers in Christ so that all who repent and believe may come to Jesus like verse 4 says, may, they may come to him. They may be saved. They may be able to be a living stone by God's grace. They may be able to save verse 9 for themselves. Wouldn't you love to hear your unsaved family members say that? Or your unsaved neighbors or coworkers say that? Once I had not received mercy, but now I have. Once I didn't belong to God, but now I am one of God's people. And again, even before we talk about going out with that, we need to ask ourselves, am I one of God's people? And I'm asking you as a, as a, as a mouthpiece a preacher of the gospel here, Are you one of God's people? Not did you grow up in church? Not are you know, not did your granddaddy do this or whatever? Are you one of God's people? Do you belong to Christ? Have you experienced the saving mercy of God in your life? So you can say, verse nine, I have received mercy. I know what it is to be forgiven. I know what it is to be reconciled to God. Can you say that? If not, then I give you the good news and I urge you to come to Jesus today. Come to Jesus. By faith, embrace him as Lord and Savior. Trust in Christ alone for your eternal salvation. And you also can know what it is to belong to Christ. You also can know what it is to be one of God's people. You can know what it is to be a member of God's family. You can know what it is to experience God's mercy and love. And he's a good and faithful God. And he, what he tells us about himself is his steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And so if you don't know Christ, please come to him today. And again, as a church, we are to proclaim these excellencies of God, of his marvelous saving acts in in Christ. We're to to declare the greatness of God by proclaiming the gospel. That's our purpose, right? And again, our mission statement fits that. it's, It's biblical. We're to make disciples. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Making disciples involves preaching the gospel to each other as believers so that we can grow in our walk with Christ and also taking the gospel to unbelievers, right? Okay, second one, and I'll be quick. Our second purpose not only are we to declare God's glory with our lips, but we are to display God's glory with our lives. We are to display God's glory with our lives. That's part of the calling of God's people. I mentioned that earlier about Israel. They were to be distinct by living holy, loving, God-centered lives. And that's still our purpose as God's new covenant people. And that's where Peter's going to go with the very next verses in verses 11 and 12. Teaching the Christians how to be holy so that their lives are a good testimony to unbelievers. We'll look at that more closely next time, Lord willing. But again, think about this whole passage and all the descriptions, all the pictures by offering the spiritual sacrifices of our whole lives, Romans 12, 1. Our whole lives are to be lived for God's glory. We show the world the the glory of our God and we we are to show the world the joy of living, of belonging to God, of living under God's rule. And I... I'm convicted when I say that, right? Because I need to be more joyful. I have so much to be joyful about. As the people of God, our lives are to display the glory of God. And you see how this goes hand in hand with declaring the gospel, right? You guys know this. Yes, we need to declare the gospel, but then we need to walk the talk, don't we? Because if we don't walk the talk, what does it do to our, our times of speaking the gospel? All right, All credibility gone. Not that we have to be perfect, but if we do sin, if we do mess up, if we do lose our temper or unkind with an unbeliever, let's be humble and admit it. Say, you know what, I'm sorry, I, I, I was short with you, and I, I don't want to be that way, and, and God calls me not to be that way. Will you please forgive me? And God can redeem that failure even then, right? And use it for good. And let's be that way with each other in our families. As we abide in Christ and his words abide in us, then the Spirit will produce that fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. He'll produce in us holiness and Christlikeness. So we preach the gospel to ourselves. We abide in his word. We Come to church, we come to the gatherings of the body so that we can be ministered to by the body to help us grow. And then we are to live out the gospel to each other and to the unbelievers throughout the week. And this points back, by the way, to the picture of the church as the temple, right? The temple And the Old Covenant was the place where God especially made his presence and glory known. The temple was where you came to draw near to God, to worship God, to meet with God. And now in the New Covenant, the corporate gatherings of the church is to be the place where God's presence is made known through his people. (laughs) Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 25, an unbeliever should be able to come to a gathering of the local church and see how the church worships God. See how they love God and love each other. And that unbeliever should be able to say, God is really among you. God is really among you. I would love for, for God to bring in unbelievers and for them to say that about Abounding Grace Church to the glory of God. God is among you. There's something different here. Oh, that Abounding Grace Church will increasingly be a place where people come and they are experiencing the very presence of God. They're seeing how the people worship God. They're seeing how delighted you are in God, how devoted you are to God with your lives. They're seeing how you love each other. And the unbeliever, the guest, whoever is saying, Man, and they showed that same kind of love to me. <laughs> There's something special about. This place. And then. Hopefully quickly we can. If, if God isn't doing it already. We can say it's it's it's. Something special about our God. Something special about. Our Savior. Jesus Christ. So. Loved ones I pray that God will give us a biblical vision. For what the church is. And what we are called to be. And I pray that. That will motivate you to be in the word, to be fellowshipping with God, to be praying for opportunities to take the gospel to the lost. I pray it will motivate you to be as plugged into the church as you can, to gather when the church gathers, because there's stuff that God is doing in these gatherings, right? It's important. We're we're to be ministering to each other. We're to be showing the glory of God to each other and be encouraged that's how I end the sermon be encouraged though we live in a fallen world and though Satan wars against the cause of Christ I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew uh, 16 I believe it was I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it so be encouraged as we talk about a temple and a people God is building his church. God is calling sinners to himself. God is taking unbelievers and making them his people. He is adding living stones to his holy temple to his glory. God is building his church, drawing people to himself right here in this area. And may God be pleased to use Abounding Grace Church to add more living stones to his holy temple. Again, Father, we just take all of this and and roll it back over onto you in praise and thanksgiving, Lord. Thank you for showing us mercy. We praise you for the finished work of Christ. Please help us to have a proper view of, of who we are in Christ, both individually but also as a church. Please grow us, Lord, for our joy, for your glory. Please use us to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Please stand let's sing of, let's proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light.